Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we feature part four in our series, Tribe, uh, and we feature our special guest, Phil Johnson, who is the pastor of the, uh, the senior pastor of the New, New Orleans Vineyard, uh, the church that I was on staff with for about seven years as the worship pastor there. So we're honored to have the church that uh, sent us out. Speaking here this morning, he's going to be speaking on the topic of culturally relevant mission. And this is from July 7th, 2013. So let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be here. And I tell you, I just, um, I couldn't be more proud of Crispin and Dina for what uh, they've done here and all you guys. It's just, um, it's an amazing thing. Of course, I come over here and I get a little nostalgic because this looks like what we looked like 28 years ago in a little shopping center and just seeing all the energy and the fun. And look, on that two-service thing, just get over it. Um, You know, you've done it once already. You know you can do it again. And who knows how many times you'll have to do it. We had actually, when Crispin was with us, we had... Max, we had eight services on the weekend because our, our room was about like this and we, uh, we just kept doing it all weekend, didn't we? And then we were dead for the next three days. But um, it's just a great thing to see what's going on here. And, and, and I've enjoyed this tribe thing too. We, we uh, actually, I don't think we've ever done this. We've, we've never had, um, actually the truth is we've never had vineyard churches that really lived out the core values in the similar way as we do today. At least in our area, we have Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and, and now Covington, North Shore Vineyard that are just so on the same page. And it feels great. We get together all the time for theology and beer. And, um, <laughs> and our theology gets uh, <laughs> better and better as the afternoon goes on. <laughs> but... Um, it's just great to, to feel at home. You can go to three different places in the area and feel like you're really at home. So it's, it's awesome. So today, um, I'm doing the fourth of five. I guess you'll, what are, you, are you doing the last one next week? No, you're not here next week. Have you done all five already? Will this be the fifth one? No, we're going to save the fifth one for two weeks down the road. Oh, okay. If we get to it. Well, then this, is the, this will be the fourth that you've heard so far. They're, they're actually, I, I don't know, do you, you have these things, Crispin, available for yeah. folks? Yeah. So if you want one of these, this is the core values and belief of the vineyard, and this is Vineyard USA, and we've been going through the five core values. Today, the one that I'm handling is a culturally relevant mission. So let's just get started this way, and I want you to use your imagination this morning as I get started. I I want you to imagine, first of all, that it's, let's say it's November in Covington, and it's 52 degrees. Hallelujah. 52 degrees in the fall. Now, it's, um, at my house in the fall, we ha- every Tuesday night, we have something that we call chili night. Do we know what that means? It means we're going to have chili. And so I get home, and, and, and you, you, I'll go right into the kitchen. I'll put a skillet on the stove, and, and I'll get some ground beef, salt and pepper, and I'll throw that ground beef in there. I'll begin to, to brown that meat. Can you smell it already? I love it. I love ground meat. It's, it's wonderful. So, so I saute that beef until I get it where I want to pull the beef out of the pan. I leave the oil, and now comes the onions and the bell peppers and the celery and a little bit of garlic. Yeah. Now you can smell it, can't you? 
And I'll saute that, those vegetables until they begin to caramelize and the onions are just a golden brown. And then I'll add a little coriander, a little chili powder, and then here comes the chunky stewed tomatoes. I love stewed tomatoes. I'll put those in there. The steam will rise as that pan starts to cool because I just put the, the cold tomatoes in there. And it'll get a little bit pasty. And then comes the beans. And then the rest of the meat. And then this little thing that I whip up with tomato juice and bulgur wheat. I've already cooked it in. Thicken it up a little bit. And I pour that in there. And then I bring the heat up. Boil it. And then I cut it down low flame. And it's simmering. And the whole house smells like chili. <laughs> then I set the table. I get the bowls. I get the tableware. I even light a couple of candles because I love chili night, you know? And so I, I put the condiments on the table. At our house, we like a little sour cream. So there's a bowl of sour cream for the chili. There's a bowl of shredded cheddar cheese. You like that in your chili? And for the brave, there's a bowl of Fritos. Oh, yeah, baby. And everybody's ready for chili. I call all the troops in, and here they come. And we sit down, and we enjoy chili night at our house. That's our culture. That's our tradition. And we love chili night except for one thing. The kids don't like chili. I don't know what's wrong with them. We've been doing this for years, but they don't like chili. They complain about it. They don't like seeing green things in their food. Your kids like that? And there must be some law against green things and chunky red things in the same bowl. So they, they're, they're all upset. But this is chili night. It's our family tradition. It's our, well, it's our culture. It's what we do. It seems like a violation to them, but it's our culture. So what are their options? Well, they got a few. They can protest chili night. And they can protest loudly until I make them a hot dog. <laughs> Except, I don't know about you, but at my house, what's for dinner? That's what's for dinner. Amen. If you don't like chili, you're out of luck. Don't fix them a hot dog. You made chili. So they can protest, but it's not going to do any good because I'm going I'm to do the chili thing. They can criticize it. In fact, they can get really sophisticated in their critique of my chili. They can say, Dad, the green peppers, you know, they bring a different sort of taste to the chili. It's a little bit bitter to me. I don't really like that. And the chunky tomatoes, Dad, they're not nearly as appealing as pureed tomatoes. And <laughs> now, they can critique it all they want, and they can be sophisticated, but it's not going to change anything because I like chunky stuff in my chili. Amen. It's my culture. It's my tradition, right? Yeah. Well, what else could they do? Well... They could wait until they're a little older and then just simply not show up. They can say, we're not going to do chili night. We're not coming over. I know, but they could do that. Or they could just consume it, consume it, consume it. But for now, none of their protests are going to work because it's chili night. It's the only game in town, and they're pretty much stuck with it. So protesting, critiquing, condemning abstaining is not going to change the culture. Now, there's one thing they might do if they're old enough. What if I got home one evening and there was already something on the stove and I could smell it when I walked in the door and it smelled substantially better than chili? They were making gumbo. Oh, yeah. Am I going to complain? Am I going to protest? Am I going to criticize? No, because you see, I like gumbo more than I like chili. 
And so what they have done is they've offered me something better. They've taken the initiative, and instead of protesting our culture, instead of condemning or criticizing the chili, they are actually offering gumbo. You see, the only way you can change culture is to create another one, to make it better, to offer somebody something better, and that's what they've done for me. That's the only way they can change it. You see, we're kingdom people, and we live in a world that is absolutely head over heels in love with chili. That's our culture. And the church, unfortunately, for many, many years, has tried faithfully to protest and condemn and criticize and abstain from chili. Mm -hmm. And we've made ourselves irrelevant in the culture where we live. Anybody besides me think that's a problem? It's a huge problem. So perhaps the key is to not just consume it, but to offer something better. The gospel message is never to be compromised. Somebody say amen. 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 You know, in 28 years, I've never, ever, ever compromised the message of the gospel. But in 28 years, I have to say, the church that, that I pastor has evolved and changed and has learned to contextualize the gospel for whatever culture we find ourselves in. Now, this is a very hard thing. I didn't start doing that. I didn't start realizing that we actually needed to do that until about 10 years into the church plant. I'm so envious of you. You guys have a pastor who's already been down that road, and he's only 25 years old. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, you, you guys heard my son, Brian. You heard John Marr from Baton Rouge. I can't tell you as an older pastor how it makes me feel to have young churches who have already made a journey that took me uh, 30 years, and 10 of it already in the church. What an amazing thing. What an amazing opportunity you have to offer something better, to learn how to offer gumbo in a chilly world, really. It's amazing. And it's not an easy thing to do. It takes a long time for us to figure this out, that protesting, condemning, critiquing, and all that is really not what God's called us to do. What He's called us to do is offer something better. The success of the vineyard, in part, I believe, has been because of our ability to recognize cultural issues, cultural values, and then shape our message, our articulation of the gospel, shape our church in a form that makes God accessible to people. I mean, I think a lot of churches, actually, the form of church, the shape of church, the language of church keeps people away from God instead of drawing them in. So I think it's an issue we have to absolutely pay attention to. Now, I'm going to give you a, a pretty extreme example of culturally relevant mission. This is a, very, it's a true story. It's just a few years ago, a pastor that I know to told this story about a missionary couple he knew who went to Africa. And they didn't go to the large cities of Africa. They went to the remote rural areas of Africa. And they were among a particular tribe who were still practicing uh, female circumcision. Uh, it's, it's more commonly known as female genital mutilation. Now, it was part of their culture, and it was done for all... Well, it's, it's, first of all, it's a very barbaric practice. 
in which uh, the female genitalia are removed and then other things are done to ensure that a woman will be a virgin when she marries a man. So it was all about the man. But the women didn't protest because it's been going on for hundreds of years. It's their, what? Their culture. Does that make it right? Oh, absolutely not. It's incredibly barbaric. But this missionary couple comes into this situation and they are powerless to immediately stop this practice. Why? Because if they walk in and they say, that's wrong, you need to stop, what are the people going to say? They're going to say, who are you? Who are you foreigners to tell us what to do? This has been going on hundreds of years and this is why we do it and we've all, everybody's okay with it. So as much as it grieves the missionary couple, they make a decision to go native. They're going to invest their lives in these people. And if they're going to do that, that means they have to go into their world. They don't have to participate in a barbaric practice, but they must enter their world and see them as people. And they're in a particular place, and they have to allow them to be in that place, at least for now. And over time, over time... They made relationships. As much as that practice, it grieved them to watch that practice. Sometimes they even attended the festivities afterwards with the people. But they continued to love and serve that tribe. They gained credibility and trust over time and slowly began to reveal the things of God to them. That human beings are all created in the image of God. Human beings all deserve to be treated with dignity. That this practice was really was not doing so. And, and it was a violation of, of a, the image of God. And they began to teach humans about the image of God. That everyone should be treated with equality, with respect. And some of them began to embrace the things of the kingdom. They embraced Christ. And over time, they saw for themselves that this practice was wrong. And the entire tribe abandoned the practice. Yeah, but it took a long time. Are you hearing me? I, I, I'm saying it over and over again. It takes time. And it grieved them the whole time. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you have handled that in that situation? What would you have done? And most of us are thinking, well, I'm just glad I'm not a missionary. <laughs> but you are. I am. We all are. We are missionaries in a foreign culture. Yeah, but I live in the United States. It's a foreign culture to the kingdom of God, isn't it? It is. So how do we handle that? Are there any difficulties with cultural relevance today? Are there things going on in our culture, maybe not quite that barbaric, but things that kind of oppose the kingdom of God, but here you are stuck in the middle? Sure there are. Things have changed. Listen, I was born in 1953. When I was born, you could buy a house for $17,000. Only problem is you only made $4,000 a year. Gas was 20 cents a gallon. Hot dog. Have things changed? I'd say so. I'd say so. Bread was 16 cents a loaf. A new car was $1,650. Milk was 94 cents a gallon. Unbelievable. Things have changed. But it's not just the economy that's changed, is it? I mean, since 1953, since I was born, only 59 years ago, Things have changed in the country. The culture has changed. There have been cultural shifts that I find it hard. It's it's almost like so much at one time, it's hard to even process it. America used to be called the melting pot. You know what we mean by that? The melting pot, it, it simply meant this, that most of the folks who came to this country, 
Most of our ancestors who came to this country came from where? They came from Europe, most of them. And that was all the way up until about the 1980s. And as Europeans immigrated to the United States, it was very easy to shed their French or German or Italian distinctives to do what? Come into a melting pot of all those and create the American culture. Because it wasn't that different than Europe's culture. Well, that, that went on until the early, well, I guess the mid-20th century. But we're not, we're not a melting pot anymore. We're a stew pot. We're almost gumbo in, in, that, in that respect. Uh, from a, from a, a population respect, we're, we're a stew pot because most of the immigrants who've come to this country in the last 20, 30, 50 years are not from Europe. They're from Asia. They're from the Middle East. They're from Africa. They're from the Caribbean. And, and, and they don't shed their distinctives quite so easily because those cultures are a lot different than ours. And you know, the truth is, people don't really want to shed their distinctives. Would you want to shed yours if you, if you moved to a foreign country? You probably wouldn't. That's why all the expats hang together in foreign countries, because we want to retain our culture. Well, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. I used to always run around and say, just learn the language if you're going to be here. You know, I don't do that anymore, because I, I, eventually they will. But the, the point is, they're, they're going to keep their distinctives. And so we're going to live in a multi-ethnic, multicultural country. It's a stew pot, and we just need to get used to that. Now, I think it's a hard thing for a lot of folks. Our mission is to reach all people, to bring the gospel into every nook and cranny of civilization, of the, of the, of the world as we know it. And so it comes to back to this. Our mission is to reach all people in America as it is, not as it was. And I think the church is still trying to reach America as it was instead of America as it is. And if we don't pay attention to it, then we will be, what's the word? Irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. So, um, I want to say today that we, we can't afford as the church of Jesus Christ to make our cause the preservation of America as it was. It's already gone. And are you ready for this one? It ain't coming back. The America that was is gone. America is what it is and what it will be is still to be determined. So that cannot be our preoccupation as Christians. Our preoccupation as Christians has to be that we are to reach all people of diverse cultures, all people of different races, and they're all right here with us. We're challenged. I've been challenged more in the last 10 years. Well, not 10. Katrina, how many years? Seven years? Eight. Thank you. Eight. I've been challenged more in the last eight years to start seeing the world through kingdom eyes instead of American eyes. And I've got to tell you, that's a hard thing to do. It's, it's just a hard thing to do, especially for we mature folks <laughs> in age. <laughs> It's a lot harder because we've been looking through those other lens for a long time. Some of you who are younger are going like, what in the heck is he talking about? Because you, you don't have that filter. You see the world a little differently. And to you, I say, uh, wonderful, good, go for it. So here's the next part of this. If the culture is changing and always will be shifting, what should the church do? What if the church stays the same but the culture changes? Well, then we're irrelevant. Do churches have a culture? Every little, every church has a culture. If I went around the room and asked you for, describe your church to me, and you would be giving me descriptive words about the culture of the North Shore Vineyard. And it wouldn't take long before I could put all those words and statements together, and I could tell you who you are as a people. 
We all have a culture. But when the world changes and the, the church doesn't, now we've got a real problem. A couple years ago, I was, I was watching American Idol. It was year 2007. Yes, I do watch American Idol. <laughs> Not so much anymore since Simon Cowell left. I, I'm a big Simon Cowell fan, sorry. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, yeah, you're acting like you don't watch it. Okay. So I'm watching American Idol, and they do something really incredibly different. They'd never done this before until 2007. What they did was they received an offering. The, the, the host, Ryan Seacrest, says, Listen, America, uh, there are problems in Africa with AIDS and malaria, and this is your night to call in and pledge some money to help those two causes in Africa. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. The world is helping the world. I don't know that I've seen it like that before. Not, not quite like that. And so the next week he comes on. He says, America, you raised $70 million. And I was blown away. $70 million. And, it, and then in subsequent weeks they showed you where it was going. But it was AIDS and malaria all over Africa. $70 million. Well, okay. So he says $70 million. And then they go on with the show. And he's interviewing one of the guys who's about to sing. And he, and he, he, he says to the guy, he says, you know, you've made it to the top ten it's amazing, though. I heard you never had a music lesson in your life. And he said, that's right. He says, why not? He says, well, my dad was a preacher. And my dad taught us never listen to rock and roll music. And I looked at my wife and I said, did you just hear what America heard? The world raised $70 million for AIDS and malaria, and the church is still telling people don't listen to rock and roll music. I was blown away. I mean, I, could, I was just the rest of the evening. I was going like, that is so sad. The world's changing, but the church is just the same old, same old in so many corners. And that's what the, listen, how many people, they got 40 million viewers. How many of those 40 million don't even go to church, don't know God, but what image do they get of the church? Irrelevant. Yeah. Don't listen to rock and roll music. If they only knew God liked rock and roll music. <laughs> That's not the point of the message today, <laughs> rock and roll music. But make a note, Crispin, it got a lot of shouts there. So. so why do you think, why do you think the church can be stuck in, in a place? And, and, and I mean, not the whole church. I mean, things have changed the last 30, 40 years. I'm very happy about that for a lot of churches. But in large part, why could the church get stuck with attitudes like that? And stuck in a cultural place that is irrelevant to the, to the people around them. Well, I have a theory. Okay. okay, yeah. I have a theory. And it's not just my theory, but I've had other people espouse this. But in 1675, a man named John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody ever read that book? Okay, if you haven't, don't bother. Um, although it's considered a classic in Christian literature. But in 1675, the guy was Puritan. 1675, here's how that book goes. It's about a man named Christian who lives in a place called Wicked City. And Wicked City is the earth. And the whole book is about Christian getting out of Wicked City and landing in a place called Celestial City, which is heaven. And heaven and earth shall never meet. And, and in his day... The idea was Christians were to come out from the world and be separate. So separate that you never had any contact with the world. They didn't engage people in the world. The whole church in England began to live like this, isolated. 
They would flee from wicked city, find some kind of way to create gated communities of Christians. Basically, that's what they did. Now listen, what I want you to know is that after that, that begins to take root. And then the church moves to New England. That was exactly the attitude of Christians. And from one church to the next church, one denomination to the next, I just want to suggest to you, we grew up in churches that were highly influenced by that kind of teaching, further moved along in the 1800s by a man named James Darby, who came up with the theory of the rapture and that sort of stuff. Uh, don't be offended, that's just where I am. And, but the whole idea was we have an escapist mentality, and everything on the earth is bad, and we must find our way to celestial city. And I just think that's bad, bad, bad. Everybody say bad. bad. Bad theology. And I think that's why most of the church, even the church I came up in, even though it had some good things about it, it was pretty much irrelevant in the world. And the last time I checked, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Where? To Celestial City? No, to the world. To the world. To be relevant. And to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom. I'm very, very happy that in the last 30 or 40 years, I'm indebted to men like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church. He was, and Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. They were some of the first and the largest megachurches in, in the country. And you know, um, when, when the church was small, I didn't like those guys. When my church was small, and in fact, I talked anti-big church. Why? Because my church was small. <laughs> and I never thought it was going to grow. And so I said, there's got to be something wrong with all that. Well, actually, I started learning from those guys around the 10-year mark that it's not a bad thing to change a few things about the church, change the form and the structure, not the gospel, so that people might want to come and visit you. (laughs) And nobody wanted to come and visit us. Why? Because I led worship. I'm not a bad worship leader, but I led worship for an hour. And if the Lord didn't show up, we'd go another 15 minutes. And then I would preach for an hour, and if I wasn't done, I'd go another 15 minutes, and you know what? The, the 40 of us loved it. At least they told me they did. They kept coming back. <laughs> but nobody else liked it. Nobody looking for God would have liked it. And so I learned from those men, you've got to contextualize to your culture. And what is your culture? What are people, what are they, well... Anyway, you just got to figure that out and contextualize it. But listen, relevance for the sake of... By the way, here's something that became relevant. Look look how I'm dressed today. Jeans, no socks, love it. (laughs) It's how I dress all the time. So I dress that way on the weekends too. Why not? Well, I just... We started our church with six people in somebody's house and we all had three-piece suits on. (laughs) At some point I looked and said, what are we doing? So, you know what? I'm glad the church has gotten casual because that's cultural. How many people dress up at work? Not too many anymore, right? Okay, music has changed. I'm glad for all that. But here's what I want to say to you. Cultural relevance for the sake of being trendy makes you irrelevant. Because you do reach a point where, I mean, I, I think lights are good. You can see a little better. You can see who's talking to you. Sound systems are great. I don't have to yell. Smoke machines on the stage? Eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, at some point, you've got to figure out what's trendy 
And what's just contextualizing the gospel and you and your church to, to the world you live in? I know a lot of people who've taken that, that seeker-sensitive thing way too far. And by the way, I, those guys got crucified and called seeker-sensitive. But listen, what's the alternative? Seeker-hostile? That's what we were. That's what we, we weren't relevant, but, but I think we are now. And, and so I, I don't talk about these kinds of things to be trendy. I'm seeing a lot of churches today just being trendy, and they're failing. Because many of them, here's another thing, cultural relevance that leads to compromise of the gospel is also makes us irrelevant. And some people are just drinking all the Kool-Aid out there today, and, and church looks no different than anywhere else, and I say you've missed the kingdom of God then. Yeah. Are you with me? Yep. Okay. So we don't want to be separatists. That's a danger zone. We're not called to that. We don't want to be conformist, because that's a danger zone. We, we make no difference then, then we all just start eating the chili. That, that's not it. We've got we to learn how to offer gumbo. In Acts chapter 17, that'll be our text for today. And that was my introduction. So, uh, no, I'm, not, I'm just, yeah, just kidding. Just messing with you. <laughs> You're laughing, but I, no, really, I just, okay. Anyway, Acts 17, think about this. It's the Apostle Paul going into the the city of Athens, Greece. Now remember, this is 2,000 years ago. Athens, Greece was the center of everything, the center of economics, the center of philosophy, the center of everything. It was, it was a, a world cent, uh, what was it? It was New York City, that's what it was. It was New York City 2,000 years ago. Now, this is hard to wrap your brain around. Think this, think about this. You're the Apostle Paul, you're going into this city and you might be, you might be the only Christian in the city. If there are two or three more, you're lucky. And there are thousands of people in the city. And you're going to this city for one reason, and that is to preach the gospel of Jesus, him crucified and resurrected. You're going to preach the kingdom of God has come, and nobody knows God. Could you imagine being charged with that responsibility? Okay, so here we go, Acts 17. Paul is waiting for his friends to arrive, and his spirit, is at verse 16, is being provoked within him as he's beholding the whole city's full of idols. So then he begins reasoning in the synagogue. Now, there were Jewish people there. There was a synagogue, and he goes into the synagogue, and he begins teaching them. He begins speaking with the Jews there. And, and the Gentiles in the marketplace every day, and then to some of the philosophers were conversing with him. And they said, what does this babbler of strange things have to say? Let's listen to him. They take him up to a place called the Areopagus. That's Mars Hill. And right next to Mars Hill is the Acropolis. In fact, it's still there today. Mars Hill. And then a little higher is this huge rock, the Acropolis. And it was filled with temples. Today you see the, the uh, Parthenon. It's the one, well, there's two remaining standing. But the Parthenon is the one that sticks out so big. And the rest of the hilltop was covered with temples. And he begins preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to this place. And they said, go ahead and talk to us about it. You, you've got this strange message. So, so Paul says to them on Mars Hill, he says, men of Athens, I observe that you're a very religious people. I mean, look at all this. I could just see him pointing to the Acropolis in all these temples. I observe that you are a very religious people. I've been all over your city. And actually, I saw a, 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 an altar to the unknown God. Well, listen, I know him. And I'm going to tell you about him. 
And he begins to talk about God, the creator, the one God who created everything. That everything is subservient to him. And he gives life and breath to all and all things. He made from one every nation of mankind and that they should seek after God. And he goes on and on. He even uses some of their, their words from their poets. For in him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. And then he says, and so now this God has called us all to repent. And come into the kingdom. Come into the life that he has offered. And then it says, very, very simply, very quickly... Um, and some mocked him, and some said, well, we'll listen to you again, and they walked off, and then some believed, actually two believed and went with him. Now, I'm amazed at this. I, I, I don't know if I could have done this, but Paul is being culturally relevant. You know that? He's learning the culture. In verse 16, he was distressed. Are you distressed by anything in our culture that just sort of makes you go, oh, yeah. Well, he was distressed because they didn't know God and they were doing all these things and he realizes, I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> but he learns the culture. And, and he's, he's, there's tension. You can just feel the tension. Have you, have you ever had to hold your values in tension? Yes. You see, you will if, you, if, if we're going to be real kingdom people. You'll have to hold your values in tension. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Maybe, maybe Dan, you, you have a value of honesty and kindness. And I know you do because you're an honest and kind guy. So Dan's got a value of honesty and kindness. And then one day Crispin comes in and he's got a Donald Trump comb over and says, How do you like it, Dan? And, and Dan's got honesty, kindness, but oh, I love Christmas. What, what we? He's got to hold his values in tension. Well, it doesn't look bad. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I mean, you've got, to, you've got these things that are really important to you, and then, but then you've got this other. He's important to you as well. So, man. By the way, did I tell you that Christian life is not easy? Amen. Not easy at all. Unless you want to be a total consumer of the culture or you want to be a total isolationist and just protest, condemn, critique everybody else. You've got to learn the culture. You've got to learn to walk with this. Listen, have we been called to be a holy people? Two people said yes. <laughs> We've, we're called to be a holy people. That's a value. Are we also called to be evangelists? Are we also called to serve people in the world? Yes. All right, there you go. That's a problem. Because we're different. We've got to hold that intention with living in a world where, that, where we don't consume everything, but we've got to learn to live in it as holy people. But holy people who are going to be culturally relevant don't act like Christian weird wingnuts. <laughs> they can, but then they become irrelevant. So Paul's not doing that. Paul said at one point, he said, I'll be all things to all men that I might win a few. Now, does that mean Paul went out and got drunk with them? No, but I bet he did not have a problem having a beer with them or some ouzo. It was grease. Come on. I mean, it was grease. Right? I bet he just didn't have a problem with that. I'm absolutely convinced he wouldn't go out and get drunk. Why? Because, well, that's out of control. We don't, we don't live like that. We don't let anything control us. All things are ours to enjoy, but not to control us. But the world ends up with all things controlling them, and we have to be there to show them something different. Paul was in the synagogue with Jews. I love that, but what did he preach? Jesus. What were they expecting? A Jew? 
He's with the Gentiles in the marketplace, but he's preaching Jesus. What did they expect? A Gentile? He's on Mars Hill with philosophers, with all kinds of weird New Age ideas. And what does he do? He preaches Jesus. You see, he blew up all the categories that people wanted to put him in. You know, Christian, what's that guy's name that wrote Unchristian? It's Kenneman is the last name. Is Gary David? Maybe it's Gary David Kenneman. No, it's, his first name is what? Anyway, he writes this book called Unchristian. And in the book, the whole purpose of the book is for Christians to find out what the world thinks of unchristians. I'm just going to summarize the whole book right here. Here's what people think, non-Christian people think of Christians. These are the words that come to their mind. Anti-gay, hypocritical, judgmental, too political, out of touch with reality, and insensitive. How does that sound? Do you know what Paul is doing in Athens? He's saying, don't make me out to be Jew, Gentile, philosopher. I'm a Christian. I'm a kingdom of God person. And so he blew up all their categories. You know, when you and I learn to be culturally relevant, when our churches become culturally relevant, then here's what happens. We'll say to the world, don't put me in that box. I'm, I'm not those things. I understand how you got that idea, but that's not me. That's not us. Did I lose you on that one? Listen, who is going to get the truth to people if not us? And we have to blow up their categories. If they think this is what Christians are, then we have to show them that we're not hypocritical, judgmental, too politically connected, and out of touch with reality. And we do that by actually living with them and showing them something better. You know, this is very, very important. We know abortion is legal in our country, right? Do you know that? The other churches I went to, I said, how many of you know abortion is legal in the country? And about three people raised their hand. And I, I think they were equating, if you said, I know it's legal, that you were saying, I, I'm all for it. No, I'm not. But how many of you know it's legal? In our culture, it's accepted. That ship has sailed. It's there. I, I, think, it's, I, think, it's, I think it's wrong. But no amount of protesting and criticizing and condemning is going to change that culture. We have to offer something better. Amen. And thank God there are some Christians, some churches who have started ministries that adopt those babies instead of letting them be killed. Thank God for that kind of movement that got started. Thank God that there are churches like yours that will, will take someone who's had an abortion or is thinking about it and love them into the kingdom and, and help them walk through this instead of criticizing and condemning. Okay, the, it's, you, somebody said it's good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, here's the next one. How many of you know that in not too many years, gay marriage will be legal in every state of the union? Some of you say, no, I'm holding out, I'm holding out. I, I, I understand you're holding out. I believe that ship has sailed as well. I mean, come on, really think about it. This is America, land of the free. Everybody has rights. I mean, if you want to look at it from just a political standpoint, it'll happen. And it will happen. So, why is that important? Because we have to learn how to navigate it. I'm, I'm, I'm not for same-sex marriage. I, I can't go there. But I love 
I love people and I love homosexuals. I have good friends who are homosexuals and struggling. And, and I, I would rather dialogue with them and say, how'd you get there and what are your thoughts? And, and then try to let God in the middle of that somehow. And I just want to love them. That's not all I can do. Criticizing and protesting doesn't help. It drives people away. I want to learn to be a person who welcomes people without, without affirming something that, that's bad. But you know what? I want to do the same thing with somebody who's committing adultery or living promiscuously. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to protest and critique and condemn you. I want to love you. And hopefully, the kingdom of, you, you'll come into the kingdom of God and you'll realize one day, whoa! And you abandon it yourself. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's the world we live in. And if we choose to be separatist or conformist, then we're not being kingdom of God people. But somebody's got to walk in the middle. And you've got to hold one hand on the gospel and the other hand on the culture, and you've got to learn how to walk through this. And I believe the greatest days of the church are ahead because I believe every church that learns to do this is going to be used mightily by God in this world. In our lifetime, I think we, we will become the real church of Jesus Christ and see things that we only dreamed of before. That's if we learn to do this, what Paul was doing. Learn the culture and then navigate the culture. Paul decided not to fight, not to debate. Not, uh, he finds common ground. In fact, that in him we live and move and have our being, that was one of their own poets that wrote that. Don't you love that? It'd be like me showing a movie clip here today from Hollywood. Um, he just found common ground. There was something in that movie clip that, that spoke to people and, and was relevant. Well, that's what he was doing. It was relevant. There, there's a fellow that uh, gained an audience in China. In fact, let's show his picture. You have his picture there for me, I think. Okay, anybody know who this is? <laughs> yeah, it's not a really current picture, is it? His name is Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China, a British missionary to China. Probably impacted that country for Christ more than anybody in history. Of course, today there are millions of Christians in China, largely as a result of his very small work that he started many years ago. On the left, you see, is the proper British gentleman, Hudson Taylor. On the right, what's the difference? He looks Chinese almost, doesn't he? He's got the Chinese clothing, but what you don't see is that he shaved his head except for the ponytail coming out the back because that was the culture. He went native. Now, I don't, he did not engage in barbaric activities. He was like those other missionaries. He loved them. He invested his life in them. He learned their culture, and then he brought people into the kingdom, and it spread like wildfire. Now you see, some people say, well, that's weird. Well, okay, that's God weird. That's not that Christian weird thing. That Christianese language and all that Christian weird stuff, that, that's not what that is. This is genuine. This is real. Do you think people can see through something that's not real? Yes. Yeah, they can. So listen, I'm not talking about pretending to have friends in the world. I'm talking about having friends in the world yes. and being a friend in the world and not making somebody our project, you know, that once they come along, ha, ha, put a notch in my gun, I got you. No. I got friends right now who have rejected Christ, rejected Christ, rejected Christ, but I have not rejected them, and I won't. We, don't, we, we have to learn to be relevant. We have to learn to do that, that balancing thing, and we have to let people know that 
we're not who they think we are. N.T. Wright one time had a man said to him, said, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. And N.T. Wright said, which God don't you believe in? And the man went on to list, I don't believe in a God who would just send people to hell and, and a God who is, has no mercy, a God who is this and a God who is that. And you know what N.T. Wright said? He said, I don't believe in that God either. He says to him, what kind of God could you believe in? And he said, a God that's merciful. He says, well, that's the one I believe in. Paul navigates his way forward and he uses the language and the forms of their culture and he shows them the way. You see, the whole thing about relevance, it's not about being trendy, it's not about compromising, it's about the mission. And the mission is to bring the kingdom of God to people. And why is this so important? Because God wants to be present in the world. He just does. When God created the world, was he present with his new creation? Oh, don't you love the beginning of the Bible? There's God and there's new humanity and, and they're together in this, on the earth. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. And in the end of the book, isn't God going to be in the middle of humanity again? Well, he wants to be in the middle of humanity right now. And the only way God can be here is through you and me, his missionaries. We're the only ones. Think about this. The church is the only organism in the world that can bring the presence of God to the jazz fest. The church is the only organism in the world that can bring the kingdom of God, the presence of God to your workplace, to your neighborhood. The church is the only organism in the world. And when I say church, I mean all of us. We're the only ones who can bring a little bit of heaven to earth. There's no other way for God to be present except through us. And so we must choose relevance no matter how tense it is. We have to choose relevance over irrelevance. And so when we do that, we can learn from the Apostle Paul. I know we're not traveling apostles. I'm kind of glad I'm not. That looks pretty tough. I'm kind of glad I'm not called to be a missionary and the deepest parts of Africa. I just, it just, I guess it's just not me. But you know what? I'm a missionary where I am. Amen. And so instead of shouting over the walls of Celestial City at Wicked City, I think I'm just going to learn how to live in Wicked City and pray for and work for its prosperity and to be a part of it. Isn't that what God told the Israelites when they were sent off to Babylon? They were, they were crying, oh, we can't worship songs. We put our harps up on the tree. And God said, get a life. <laughs> he said, get a life, get a wife, build a house, settle down, and work and seek the welfare of the city where I've planted you. Yeah, but it's Babylon. Well, that's where I planted you. I think we can take a message from that, can't we? So when we do it, we just make sure we do it, not with arrogance and pride, but with humility. What a privilege to represent God today. What a privilege. And, and whenever, whenever the church gets that, whenever we rise above the rest of humanity with our arrogance and pride, we've just become irrelevant. We've become a noisy gong, as Paul says. Whenever the church becomes afraid of the big bad world and we retreat from it, we become irrelevant. You know, you, gotta, you should thank God for Crispin as a pastor who will tell you to go out and get your hands dirty who will tell you, go out and be in the world without being of it, because most pastors don't trust their people to go out there. They think they won't come back. 
And I just go like, dude, come on, you got Jesus in you. What else do you need? You don't trust Christ in you to get you back? To get you through that? To actually be light in the middle of darkness? Come on. Okay, I'll have to admit, some of mine did go out and didn't come back. <laughs> but you need to go, to go look for them. It doesn't change who we are or what our mission is. We just got to learn how to do this. We can't be afraid. But when we identify with the world in humility, we count it a privilege to do what we do, and we do it with love. I tell you what. Mother Teresa said of herself, she said, I'm a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who's sending a love letter to the world. Isn't that awesome? I'm a little pencil. How many of you can, okay, you don't have to be a big Sharpie. Can you be a little pencil? I'm a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who's sending a love letter to the world and he's doing it through this little pencil. Hot dog. I thought she was so brilliant and then I discovered where she got that from. She was brilliant, but she got it from Paul. Look at this verse. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says about all of us, you are a letter of Christ. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You're already a letter. You're a letter that's, that's been written by the spirit of God in you. And he goes on to say, and that will be written not on stone, but on other people's hearts. When we learn to be on a culturally relevant mission. What a great privilege. You know, in some ways, I envy you guys. You're at a size where, I, I, you know, I, I think you're at a place where it, it's going to be a little bit easier to be one. And I think if you start now being one as a people, and not an isolated people, but a people that understands who you are and what you're for, oh my goodness, the future ahead of you, it, it, God's going to do amazing things with you. Because you, you know, I got a feeling you, you won't have to fight some of the battles we've fought. You won't have to argue over some of the things we've argued and debated. Why? Because it's already settled for you. And as new people come in, they, it'll be settled for them. I just love that. What a great opportunity for this church to be a little pencil in the hand of a writing God. Amen? Amen. Can I just pray for you? And then, however you're going to close, Chris, but I just want to pray for this. So, Lord, who knew? Uh, we think we plan things. We, we think we're, we're pretty sharp, and we lay out our strategies. But, God, at the end of the day, all our strategies come from you. We're really not that smart. But I just thank you that you've called this group of people. I thank you that you've called Crispin to be a light in this city, in this place. And Lord, I just speak your blessing on them. And I pray, God, that you would grant to them favor in the marketplace, favor in the neighborhoods, favor at the playgrounds, favor in every place they go. May the North Shore Vineyard just be the light of Christ. I pray, God, that as they struggle through, and you will struggle through some issues, that you keep bringing them back to that oneness where dialogue is the key. Where they can process ideas with, without being divided. And they can move forward as one to impact their community. 
I just pray your blessings on them, Lord. And I feel like the Lord would say to you today that you're a blessing to him. This morning in worship, I was in the back of the room and um, I just felt like God was saying, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing in my eyes. And, and I don't want to get weird on you, but in the Old Testament, the, the aroma of prayer, the aroma of worship, somehow God, he, he likes it. He just likes it. And he's pleased with you. And so may God bless you. May he keep you. May he protect you. May his face shine upon you and cause you to be light and life in the world around you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.